As you're taking your seats, I invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 7. We're uh, attempting this morning to cover a massive amount of text, which is no small feat for me. You should know that by now. Uh, we are going to go through almost the entirety of chapter 7. So you're going to have to buckle up, and this is going to be a bit of a whirlwind. But I, I believe it's important, as you're looking at chapter 7, it's important that we don't break this up. This is Stephen's speech before the council, before the religious elite, the religious authorities. And Stephen is going to make this defense of the faith. Remember, there have been false accusations leveled against Stephen. A false witnesses have been raised up to say that Stephen is blaspheming against not only Moses, but God. Stephen's been accused of distorting and diminishing the value of the law of God and the temple of God. And now Stephen is being put on stage and he's given the opportunity to defend himself and it's fascinating. This isn't the traditional kind of defense. Instead, this is actually more of a prosecution. And it's fascinating, if you can just envision with me a courtroom scene where Stephen has been brought in to the temple, and by the way, the temple is one of the primary themes of this text. If you understand the importance of the temple in Jewish uh, faith and religion, you, you know this. Listen, the temple is like, uh, uh, you ever play that game Jenga as a kid? We got that for our kids for Christmas, and my son always goes right for the bottom two. He wants to just see that thing collapse. Listen, if you yank out the bottom of the religious faith, what happens is this. It all comes crumbling down, and right at the bottom is the temple. The temple is the centerpiece. It is the crown jewel for the Jewish faith. And without the temple, they essentially have nothing. It is the heart of their religion. I mean, let me just give you an illustration of that. At 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And one of the greatest kind of aspects of Jewish evangelism today is this. Go up to a faithful Jew and say, well, what do you do without the temple? The temple was the place, right, where the priests were to stand before God, between God and the people, where they were going to offer sacrifices for the remission of sins. And without the temple, there are no priests. And without the priests, there are no sacrifices. And without the temple, the priests, and the sacrifices, there is no Jewish faith. There is no hope. And if you get that, then you'll understand this entire text. Because Stephen has been accused of attacking the foundation of the faith, the temple. And that is where he has been brought for this trial. He is in that place, and that is going to come up frequently. He is in this place, the temple. And now he's brought forth in verse 1. It says, the high priest said, are these things so? Are all these accusations true? And Stephen said, here's his defense. And just envision the scene. It's a courtroom scene. He's being put on trial. The accusations have been made. The case is being set out against him. And you can picture just in a normal courtroom scene where the judge steps forward and says, all rise. But there's a twist here because Stephen now stands up and he looks at the judge. He looks at the high priest. He looks at all of the religious leaders and he says to them, you rise. I'm not the one on trial, you are. And so Stephen begins not to simply defend himself, but he lays out a case against the religious elite, against the nation, unbelieving Israel. And he comes at them like a force to be reckoned with, a prosecutor with a mission. And though the council does not recognize it, they are the ones on trial here. They have been attempting to accuse and condemn Stephen. And as we saw at the end of, in verse 15, Stephen is standing before them and he has a face like an angel. He is literally radiating the glory of God and what they cannot see is so profound. Ironically, the same glory had been reflected on the face of Moses and though the council does not recognize it, they are attempting, attempting to accuse and condemn a prophet like Moses, the one they claim to follow. The 
The case is about to be made and the evidence is about to be presented and Stephen will address one major question to the religious elite, to the Jewish people. He'll ask them essentially this question, where is your faith? What is the object of your faith? What have you put your faith in? It's a fair question to ask of all of those who claim to have faith in God. For there can often be a subtle, unrecognizable drift away from faith in God toward faith in things from God. Toward, for example, things like Moses. Toward things like the law. Toward things like the temple. They can become the objects of faith instead of what they all point to, God. And that is what Stephen is zeroing in on. And Stephen wants to build an unshakable case. And so he walks through the history of Israel, kind of broad spectrum, uh, bird's eye view, and he begins to strategically highlight aspects of Israel's history that make his point abundantly clear. And you can think of this text kind of like a funnel very broad at the beginning, and as we march through the text, what you see Stephen doing is taking this broad, broad picture of Israel and beginning to just funnel it down right to the point, and then it's like he's winding up. Listen, he's winding like a catapult. is just drawing back, 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 and then he just launches an assault at them. He begins by highlighting first in the history of Israel the promise of blessing, the promise of blessing. We'll pick up in verse two, it says this, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Stephen launches into a history of Israel, but there's more to it than that. This is not simply a history. Remember, it's unbelieving Israel who is really on trial here. This has happened, by the way, many times in the history of Israel. God has established a covenant with the nation of Israel, and it's crucial to understand this framework to understand all of the Bible. A covenant is a legally binding agreement with blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience. There's only so many times, we understand this with a kind of a legally binding agreement, right? There's only so many times you can default on your mortgage before the bank comes and takes your house. Well, God is holding Israel accountable for covenant unfaithfulness. And the parameters for this covenant have been established in the book of Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote. And they're upheld throughout all of the scriptures. But what we see is this. Oftentimes in the scriptures, and in fact, many of the Old Testament prophets, their point is the same as Stephen's. They come back to the people of Israel and they say, you haven't been faithful to the covenant. You haven't been faithful. And God is responding. God is holding you accountable. There is judgment to come because you have broken the covenant. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Nehemiah, Amos, Hosea, Daniel, all of them have this same broad theme, this paradigm throughout their their book. That's just to name a few. Stephen functions like these prophets, like a prosecutor, putting the nation on trial. And God has graciously interacted with Israel in the past, and that's what he wants to begin with. Listen, your God loved you. Your God came for you. When there was sin and brokenness, when, there was out, when you were without hope in the world, God came for you. God came to a pagan, an unbeliever named Abraham. Abraham, the scriptures tell us, was an idolater. He didn't love God, he wasn't pursuing God. God found him when he wanted nothing to do with God. And he unfolded this marvelous plan of salvation, beginning with promises that he made to Israel, and he promises two blessings in particular, two that are referenced here. The first in verses two to five is land. Did you notice that there? 
He calls Abraham out of his land and he says, go and I am going to give you a land. So Abraham obeys in verse four, he went from the land of the Chaldeans You have to see this too. He brought Abraham, this is such a central theme throughout this, he's bringing Abraham from a pagan land. He speaks to Abraham in a pagan land. And he speaks to Abraham as a pagan. And what we see unfolding here is this, the subtle point that Stephen is making that the God of glory, you might wanna highlight that in verse two, the God of glory revealed himself to Abraham when there was no temple, when there was no nation of Israel. Remember, these are things that the nation of Israel had begun to put their faith in. They thought they were something special and, and they began to lean into these things. The blessings that God had given them had become the object of their affection There was no temple at this point. There was no Mosaic law. Don't miss this. And and, and just to highlight this point, this is such a strong rebuke. Look at verse five. Yet he gave him, speaking of Abraham, no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Do you see what he's saying here? He didn't even give Abraham a foot's length of land. Abraham never experienced the fulfillment of these promises. They were always future for Abraham. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And you see, you can hear Stephen subtly making this statement through the word of God, the land isn't the ultimate evidence of God's blessing. The second thing that's promised here is offspring. Did you notice that? God promised the blessing of land and the blessing of offspring. And he told Abraham that he would make it of him a, a, a mighty nation. He did all this, by the way, you can read the actual accounts that Stephen's referencing in Genesis 12 and 15 specifically. But in verse six and seven, look what happens. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them from, for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place, in this place. What is this place? It's referring to the temple. The temple is in view here. The goal of the land, you have to see this, and the goal of the offspring was always pointing towards the temple. The real goal of God's promise to Abraham was not the land at all, Here's, catch this, if you take notes, you want to write this down. It was the freedom to render true worship and devotion to God. The freedom to render true worship and devotion to God. You see, true faith was directed uh, towards true worship. And the fulfillment of Israel's true worship is in the Messiah, not in the temple. And Abraham is a, a model for Israel, and that's why Stephen begins here. He says, look, you should be like Abraham. Abraham lived by faith, and he obeyed God, even when he didn't see the fruition of the promises. He walked by faith and not by sight. The paradigm for God's people was that God gave promises, and Israel was to respond in God's gracious giving of the promises by faith and obedience. And verse eight just transitions now. It transitions for us. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And all Stephen is saying here, look, God is being faithful to fulfill his promises. And remember, Abraham and Sarah, they were well beyond the years of childbearing. He had no child. And remember Sarah, when she found out through Abraham, you know, that, that there, she was gonna have a kid, what did she do? She laughed. She said, that's ridiculous. There's no way that's gonna happen. But here what we see is this, that God is always faithful to his promise. And you can hear Stephen saying through the, 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 in the white space there, where's your faith, Israel? What have you placed your faith in? What are you trusting in? Where's your hope? God was faithful. Secondly, notice this, the pattern of rejection. 
God promises, here's the paradigm, blessing to Israel. They should be following in faith and obedience, but what happens instead is Israel begins this unrelenting pattern of rejection. Stephen highlights a couple of individuals here. First, he wants to speak about the deliverance that God provides through Joseph, and then the deliverance that God provides through Moses, Moses being the central figure in this entire speech. Beginning in verse nine, let's follow along here. It says this, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine through all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. He tells very selectively the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 through 46 gives the whole story. But what you have to see here is this. He's creating a sharp contrast between Joseph, and notice this, he doesn't use the term Joseph's brothers, he uses the terms patriarchs. Notice what he says about Joseph in verse nine. God was with him. That's so significant. You see, God was with him. God had chosen him. God was going to use him. And God fulfilled his promise through Joseph. He said that there was going to be a a time when they would not be in the land and God would deliver them. But notice the, the contrast with what the patriarchs did with Joseph. You remember the story? They looked at Joseph and he was the, the favorite and he had these awesome dreams where all of the brothers' stuff was bowing down before his, you know, and, and that must have been great to hear. Yeah, if, you're a younger, if you're an older sibling, can you imagine your younger siblings coming to you and saying, hey, I had this dream and all of your sheaths of barley bowed down to mine. Isn't that amazing? See, but God was revealing to him through the dreams that he was having, Remember? that God was going to use Joseph in a significant way, but instead of of being grateful for the way God was going to use their brother, how did they react? They were jealous, they hated him. They brought him along when Joseph came for a visit and they they threw him down into a pit, they sold him off to gypsies and he became a, a slave in Egypt and eventually God allowed him to work up the ranks. You know, it's amazing the parallels here. He finds favor with Pharaoh. And here he is, rejected by the patriarchs. The 12 representing the nation of Israel. They rejected God's deliverer and they rejected God's deliverance. And make a note of what's said about Joseph here. They gave him, uh, God gave him favor and wisdom. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Jesus and it sounds like Stephen, doesn't it? He's marked with blessing from God while the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel are marked with jealousy and God is with Joseph, he's not with them and that's one of the things that Stephen is driving home. Don't you understand? God is not with you. You are not the authority. And we have the famine unfolding verses 11 and 12 through 16, Stephen is going back to the land promise here to emphasize that God's great deliverance and blessing to Jacob's family occurred in Egypt. God met his people in a foreign land and he brought them out. So much that can be said about the way God delivered. And you notice there's gonna be a running theme here 
I'll just highlight it for now and we can watch this unfold. But did you notice it says that the brothers did not recognize Joseph the first time he came? Did you catch that? It was only the second time he came. And we'll see that becomes a constant theme with the messengers from God. There is not only not recognizing, there is a rejection, a resistance. And we see the same thing happening with Moses. Notice this, there's deliverance through Moses being highlighted, verses 17 through 39. The major portion of Stephen's historical sketch here is devoted to the story of Moses. Remember, Moses is the one that Stephen has been accused of blaspheming against. Moses is the one they respect and the one they they claim to honor. Verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. There was 400 years of slavery for the people of God in Egypt. And as they multiplied and as they grew, ex, or Genesis excuse me, reminds us that this new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and, and did not afford to the people of God the same blessings as that previous Pharaoh, he saw the increasing numbers and fear began to take over. And so he wanted to limit their growth and the way he would do that would, was by slaughtering the newborn babies. Moses, we know, was saved by his mother and sister, floated down the river. It says, verse 20, at this time Moses was born, and I love this, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Don't miss what Stephen is emphasizing here. Remember, like Joseph, God was with Joseph. Don't miss this. Right from the form of a baby as an infant, God was with Moses. God had chosen Moses. He would be the divine instrument of redemption and deliverance. God spared him. And there in a foreign land, God revealed himself to Moses. Look what it continues to say here. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed, catch this again, do you catch this theme here? In all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Sound familiar? When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Moses knew he was an Israelite. Moses knew he wasn't an Egyptian. And somehow God had revealed to him, God had made it known and Moses understood in his heart that God actually had him there for a reason. That there was significance to his life that he would become an instrument of redemption for the people of God. so fascinating what's taking place here. It came into his heart to visit his brothers. That word visit, I believe, is a significant word that Stephen chooses. It's used throughout Luke and Acts for God or his emissaries overseeing and caring for his people. Moses is God's emissary going forth to look after his fellow Israelites. And here Moses was avenging his fellow Israelite. Moses assumed that the Israelites would recognize that he was from God. Notice that, that's what the text says. And seeing one of them being wronged, verse 24, he defended the oppressed man and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers, look at this, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. This is fascinating. There's a pattern forming here that he's highlighting for the, the, the unbelieving Israelites. Don't you understand? See, Moses in verse 25 is depicted as a mediator between the Israelites and the Egyptians and the two Israelites in particular who are fighting each other and he was attempting to reconcile them. 
He was the divinely appointed mediator between Israel and God, but here they do not recognize and they will not embrace him. And instead, look at what they say. And on the following day, he appeared to them. And as they were quarreling, he tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? That's the point. God did. God did. Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Moses fled to Midian, where he became a sojourner, a pilgrim. He had been rejected by his own people and forced to live in a strange land. But what you need to notice is this, that God was with him. And there in a foreign land, God revealed himself to Moses. In a foreign land, not in the land of Israel, outside of the borders of Israel, where there was yet no temple, where there wasn't even a codified law. And you have to hear Stephen uh, screaming through the pages, listen, God cannot be tied down to a single place or to a, a single people. Verse 30 through 33, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the angel of the Lord will also become a common theme. Again, outside of the holy land, and notice what Stephen highlights. Again, remember that this is a selective survey of history. Everything he wants to highlight is incredibly intentional, and he reminds them that when the the Lord spoke through Moses, through that burning bush that was not consumed, God said, where you are standing is holy ground. No land, no temple, but still holy ground. In verse 34, it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. In spite of their constant rejection, God would deliver them. And now he becomes more direct and he starts to get to the point. He's beginning to to funnel things down, to zero in on the issue. Look at verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And what was our response? Our fathers refused to obey him. Look how they treated Moses. I mean, can you just, as we read that, can you draw the clear parallels with the ministry of Jesus Christ? The signs and the wonders, the standing before the people of God, the the giving out of the living oracles, listen, the living word of God, the revelation from God himself to his people. Who 
And he makes it so clear, right? Did you catch that reference in verse 37 to Deuteronomy 18? This Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And even Moses was anticipating one that was greater than him. How did they treat him? They rejected him. They refused him. And this is the pattern of the nation of Israel. God sends a messenger. God sends a deliverer. God supports one who will come and rescue them. And they reject him. They resist him. They will not obey him. They will not follow him. That's how they treated Moses. That's how they treated Joseph. But look at how they they treated God. They move from not simply the pattern of rejection, they move into the perversion of idolatry. And he's just zeroing in on their heart. In verses 39 through 50, again, he begins to just drive this point home. Israel has continually fought God and rejected God and his messengers, but they haven't simply rejected God. They have constantly, continually, at every stop, replaced God. 39, picking up halfway through the verse, it says this. It says, we'll begin at the beginning of the verse. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Notice that it was in their hearts that they turned to Egypt. It was an inward turning to the ways of Egypt, their minds already set on other gods. We know the history of Israel, most of us do. Exodus paints this picture so powerfully. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, Remember this? Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God, and he's gone for 40 days. That's a real long time, apparently, because in that time, they look to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us, this is, so, this is staggering. They acknowledge that it is Moses who led them out of the land of Egypt. They had experienced the mighty signs and wonders. Remember that? They saw the plagues. They saw the power of God. They saw that God was with him, and they so easily just thrust him aside. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Catch the irony there. The God they made with their own hands. Their faith is in something they have made. Their faith was in something that projected themselves. Every idol man makes with his hands is some kind of Selfish representation. They reject Moses, and in rejecting Moses, they reject God. And it was ultimately a lack of faith, a choosing to place their faith in something else. They make a golden calf and they offer sacrifices to the idol. They rejoice in the work of their hands and see he's beginning to focus in on the problem. Your problem, Israel, your problem, humanity, is a worship disorder. You worship what you place your faith in. Whatever you have faith in, whatever you believe is your savior, that is the thing you will ultimately worship. It is ultimately a distortion, a perversion of the pure worship of God. Stephen is looking at Israel and he's saying, you have the very same problem. This has always been your problem. You are not really worshiping God. Verse 42, this verse should ring a bell. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. 
Reminiscent, isn't it, of Romans 1, 24 through 28, where God gives humanity over. You see, this isn't just an Israel problem. This is a human problem. God gave them over to the lust of their flesh, to the desires of their hearts, which led to all kinds of sinful perversions. And this, by the way, is the most fearful judgment of all when God turns us over to ourselves and lets our own rebellious ways take their destructive, natural course. When God withdraws his restraining grace, it is a devastating outcome. Verse 43 points out that they were worshiping the hosts of heaven. And again, remember, the, the parallel here is looking, their hearts being turned back to Egypt. They worship heavenly bodies. They worship the gods of the sun, you know, the sun gods and the moon gods and the gods of the stars, all these astral gods. And ultimately what you can see is that they are worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And now, quoting from Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, do you see what he says? As it is written in the book of the prophets, he says this, Do you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." His point is so clear and powerful, and you have to see there is a, a snowball effect to this speech. You see, it's supposed to be building weight. It's building momentum. It's building conviction. And the point of quoting this passage is so, it's brilliant, and the Spirit of God is working so mightily through Stephen, and he says, did you bring me sacrifices in the desert, O house of Israel? You made sacrifices, all right. You made sacrifices to golden calves and to heavenly bodies and to idols that you made with your own hands, but you did not make them to the true and living God. You did not make them to the one who actually delivered you. You did not make them to your redeemer. Instead, you were idolaters. And the result was your exile. That is the history of Israel, isn't it? Their rebellion, their idolatry ends in their exile. And here he says, beyond Babylon, that's what you did then and that's what you've done now. And in verse 44 through 50, all the promises are converging here. And, and you gotta watch this, okay? The particular object of their worship is the temple. That's the object of their false worship. That's where they've placed their faith. And watch the parallel he draws. You notice this? You took up in verse 43, the tent of Moloch. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Remember God had instructed Moses. He'd given them a pattern to build a tent of meeting just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. God had allowed them to build a tabernacle. And remember, as they went through the wilderness, the point was this, they were not yet in the promised land. And yet, uh, the tabernacle, remember, the, the, in the wilderness, they had to wander from one place to the next. They were a pilgrim people. They were a sojourning people. And wherever they went, that's the point, their God went with them. He wasn't tied down to a building. He wasn't tied down to a specific place. In fact, when they actually went into the promised land, they brought with them the tent of meeting and they set it up there too. And David, remember, it was David who wanted to build God a permanent house. Now, now we're in the land. Now we're seeing the promises fulfilled. We're in the place that God promised to Abraham. They didn't want to, or excuse me, they didn't need to move around anymore. 
And so they figured God didn't need to move with them either, right? You can understand the mentality. We get this, don't we? And in our kind of a situation here, why do you set up and tear down when you don't have to, right, facility team? Right? Let's build something permanent. Remember God told David, he said, David, there's too much blood on your hands. You're a man of war. And I don't want you building the house for me. I mean, your son, he can build me a house. Your son Solomon will build me a house. But even what Stephen is highlighting is so important here. Solomon understood too that it wasn't a house that was important and the house couldn't tie down God. It couldn't restrict God's presence. It wasn't the end all and be all. So he says in verse 48, he quotes from 1 Kings chapter 8, this is Solomon speaking, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, right? And to support this, he now quotes from Isaiah 66. And just, I love this, he's just stacking up the word of God. He's just piling it up for them to see. It's, it's not me you have to wrestle with here. It's not me you're fighting against and resisting. It's God, so he quotes Isaiah chapter 66. By the way, the context of Isaiah chapter 66 is one of these covenant law, Isaiah is a covenant lawsuit book. Do you, do you remember how chapter one begins? It's amazing. Chapter one begins by God telling Israel, I do not want your sacrifices. I do not want your new moon feasts. I've never wanted that. You put your faith in those things, the external aspects, a religious system. I want your heart, Israel. And throughout the book of Isaiah, he's building this case against them. You're sinning, you're rejecting me. And he says, my, my servant can save you from that. But as he comes to the end of the book, what's the last chapter in Isaiah? Chapter 66. And chapter 66 is the closing argument of Isaiah against the people of God. And he comes at them. I mean, and you, if you read the last verse in Isaiah chapter 66, it tells you the consequence, the, the final judgment of resisting God. And we know this, it's quoted in the New Testament, right? You will be banished to a place where the worms do not die, where the flames cannot be quenched. But in 66, at the very beginning, verses one, he says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God cannot be confined to one place or one people and Israel's history testifies to that fact. Abraham, God came to Abraham in Mesopotamia. God came to Moses in the wilderness. God gave deliverance while they were in Egypt. The tabernacle was the prototype of the true worship of God. It symbolized God's movement with his people, never tied to a land, never tied to a place, because God is utterly transcendent. He rules all of creation. He is everywhere, and he can be worshiped everywhere by anyone who turns to him. But the people of God, and they did this in Isaiah's time too, they had made the temple everything, and only in the temple could you really worship God, and God could only be found here, and they worshiped the building. The temple was to be a house for Israel, not for God. A place for Israel to express their true devotion to God, but it had become something else. It had become an idol. And right here, he's, he's wound up, and now he drives it home so hard. And he hits at the pinnacle of their sin, and really the pinnacle of all sin. Their idolatry had resulted in the greatest rejection of all. And so he moves now to drive his indictment home. His closing arguments have been made. And you'll notice here there's a shift in his speech here. He moves from the, 
first person to the second person. You know, before he's talking as our fathers and our fathers and the patriarchs. And it was, it was, I was included in there, but now he moves and he gets very specific and personal and he says, but now you. It's no longer an issue of past history, but of present reality. In verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Catch this. As your fathers did, so do you. You stubborn, rebellious, hard-hearted, prideful people. God has always come after you. God has always sought you in his love and in his grace. He has always longed for you, but you stiffen your neck. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Every prophet your fathers killed, every prophet your fathers rejected, all the prophets that predicted the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the righteous one, and you have not just done the same of your, as your fathers. Listen, you are the climax of your fathers. You are worse than them. They predicted the coming of the righteous one, and it is him that you have betrayed and that you have rejected. You rejected the law, you rejected the prophets, you rejected the temple and the one they pointed to. All the prophets predicted you, he says. They were a shadow of you and you gotta think about how this is gonna come across. I mean, if if you grew up in a bad home, maybe you grew up with, with a terrible upbringing in your parents and one of the things you said was this, I will never do what my parents did, I will never be like my parents. Well, Stephen is looking at them and he's saying, you are not just exactly like your parents, you are worse than your parents. This is the greatest treachery of all. And loved ones, listen, we know this, right? There is no greater treachery than to reject the righteous one of God. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, he says. You missed it. But while this is the pinnacle of sin, listen, I want you to see this. Even in Stephen's indictment here, this, however, is not a final condemnation. His aim is not simply to condemn. His ultimate goal is their repentance. The door remained open here to repent and receive Christ And just like, listen, just like all the prophets before and and specifically with Joseph and with Moses, how the first time they didn't embrace him, it's as if Stephen is that second time for them. And he's standing before them and saying, look, you rejected him the first time, but don't, don't be like your sinful fathers. Listen, the second time he comes, embrace him. And I'm bringing you him through the word that I speak to you. It's not too late, he's saying to them. And maybe like Israel, you are sitting in this place this morning and you have resisted God's deliverance and you have resisted God's deliverer the first time or maybe the second time or the third time or the fourth time or maybe this is the hundredth time you've heard of the deliverance that God wants to offer you in Jesus Christ and you have stiffened your neck against him and you have resisted the spirit of God that is trying to work within your heart and God says to you today, stop. Stop resisting me, I love you. I've always loved you and I've come for you.
Do not harden your heart today and perish like all those who have gone before, who have heard the good news of deliverance and failed to fall humbly before his throne of grace and embrace the gift of salvation. Listen, heed the word of scripture. Today is the day of salvation. Today, today, today. Do not go another day resisting the spirit of God. At the height of Stephen's condemnation, he offers the possibility of forgiveness. We believe, we believe that Jesus Christ came, that he was the one that all of the scriptures, all of the temple, all of the, the law, and every prophet before pointed to him and what he accomplished on the cross, dying for our sins, and what God did in rising him to life is the only hope of salvation for humanity. No matter how, how great our sin, our hope is that in God's grace is greater still. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this if we're followers of Christ? I want to close by just giving you four things that we can walk away with from this. First is this, God's presence is transcendent. Worship him wherever you are. This is what Israel had so wrong. They had tied the presence of God to a specific place a building in a land, and they missed that all those things pointed to something so much greater. They missed what the prophets actually said about the presence of God, and what we understand, listen, Christian, is this, that now in Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God goes with us wherever we go, amen? Wherever we are, we have the privilege and the responsibility to worship God. So as you live your life, and as you live your life as a living sacrifice unto him, you need to see this, the connection here. As you live like Christ, and as you live for the glory of God, this is a spiritual act of worship unto him. He empowers us for it, and he calls us to it. Don't disassociate your, you know, this is not the only aspect of worship we enjoy. This is one of the greatest things we enjoy, corporately worshiping God together, but it is not the only avenue of worship. Our lives are to be an act of worship unto God. Secondly, note this, that God's word is sufficient. Study it whenever you can. Stephen built his entire defense from the Old Testament scriptures. Did you notice that? I'll often hear Christians ask this question, how important is the Old Testament? Should I really be spending a lot of time studying the Old Testament? And my answer is a resounding yes. I mean, it is all of these scriptures that point to Jesus Christ, that affirm our faith, that build confidence in the faith. And I would say to you that God's word is so sufficient. Stephen found it so sufficient. All he does is draw from the scriptures to build an unshakable case that, notice, they cannot argue with, they cannot debunk, they can't even poke holes in it. As we'll see, they're only furious with him. There is no response. They simply want to kill him. Christians, listen, it is so imperative that we study God's word, that we take this seriously, that we know God's word. I, I, was, I was preparing, uh, I, was, I had my books laid out on my, my uh, dining room table yesterday and I was writing this out and I was praying about it and my doorbell rings and I walk to the door and there is a Jehovah's Witness, a man probably 60 years old, I got my book sprawled out on the table and he's handing out an invitation for his Easter service. And he says to me, you know, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God, right? That's one of the, the key distinctions between us and them. And he says, well, I say hello. And he says, hi, why don't you, we wanna invite you to come on out and, and worship God and the fact that he sent his son to save us from our sins, so close, isn't it? And I said to him, I said, is, I said, well, praise God, isn't it amazing that God would come and die for us? And he says, no, 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 Jesus. I said, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> but listen, listen. We had a 15-minute conversation standing in the front door of my house 
where he wanted to grab scripture after scripture after scripture to defend his point and to articulate that Jesus is a created being. He is not God. And and scripture after scripture, I'll just tell you this, not not in any kind of pride or anything like that, but every time he quoted a scripture, I was able to say, let's just, I said, said, by by the way, I'm a pastor. Let me grab my Bible. And every time he said a scripture, we went to that, I'd say, let me just go to that scripture. And it was always out of context. It was always wrong, okay? And I just, I just, time after time, and Christian, I just want to urge you, listen, so many people out there getting caught off guard, so many Christians out there not knowing how to defend the faith, so many Christians out there not knowing how to use their Bibles, when, listen, that is the power that we have. It is the sword that we have. It is everything to us. It is what will convince people of the truth. And if we do not know it, and if we do not wield it, you know, if, if we have this little tiny you know, sword that's blunt and we can't do any damage with it, listen, we're failing as Christians. Christian, make it your life. Listen, allow it to drive you. Study scriptures, know the scriptures, believe the scriptures, preach the scriptures. I preached, I, I preached my heart out to this guy and he said, he tried to walk away numerous times. Please don't go, let me just, you know, I, I looked at this man and here's, listen, here's the reality and I'm just, my heart was so overwhelmed by this experience because here we are, listen, we're about to celebrate Easter and there's these people out there peddling a false system of religion and they're more passionate about it sometimes than we Christians are. And I pleaded with him as he walked away. I said, please, sir, you have put your faith in the wrong thing. And if you do not believe that Jesus is God, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Sir, I begged him. I said, please, sir, please, come back anytime. I'll sit with you. Let's open the scriptures together, sir. This is so important. Your, whole, your soul, your soul depends on this. And he looked at me and he said, you're crazy. And he said, we'll see when we get there. I said, sir, we don't want to see when we get there. So third, listen, God's Savior is magnificent. Proclaim him wherever you go. I just, I'm so captivated by Stephen, right? Here's, here's a man, you need to understand this. Stephen knew he was going to die when he began this speech. I believe that with all my heart. I believe Stephen knew he didn't have a hope in the world. I believe he knew that this was his final, his final words. And so he took the opportunity to make sure that he proclaimed Christ. He knew what he believed was true. He knew that the people he was preaching to, listen, were dead in their trespasses and sins. He knew that without the hope of Jesus, they would die in their sins. I just want to encourage you, look, our Savior is magnificent. He is so beautiful. He is so worthy of our love and adoration. And listen, it is so honoring to him when we proclaim him as Lord of all. We have a great opportunity coming up with Easter. So many people sensitive to this, right? Don't be afraid to proclaim Christ. Don't be afraid unless, yes, it could be costly and Stephen knew it could cost him his life. But here's fourthly what we can walk away with. God's grace is abundant. Follow him wherever he leads. Stephen, I believe, knew with all his heart that God's grace was so lavish upon him. God's grace in his own salvation. God's grace to give him what he needed in his moment of need to proclaim Christ Jesus. And so without hesitation, he stood and he indicted the nation of Israel and he called them to repent and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's by implication, but it's there. Listen, God's grace is abundant to carry us wherever he wants to lead us. His power is sufficient. It is costly, but it's worth it. Look, Stephen stands tall. He stands firm. He stands with courage. And he says to the nation of Israel, where's your faith? You've placed your faith in the wrong thing. How about you? Where's your faith this morning? Stephen says, mine is in the living and true God of the Bible. Mine is in the righteous one who you killed but God raised. And though you may take my life, I will be raised with him. I will stand with the one who gave it all so that I might have all of him. Where's your faith? Father, we pray that you would encourage us with the portrait of Stephen. God, a man who 
used your word in such a powerful way, Lord, who was so filled with your spirit, who was so passionate about the truth of the gospel, who wasn't afraid and would not back down, a man who would stand wholly abandoned and surrendered to you, even if it meant his own life. God, how fearful we are. God, how easily shaken we are, how insecure we can be, how consumed with self we are, Lord, how frail and fragile we are in our faith. And God, I pray that you would instill in us a deeper faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that we may boldly stand and declare that we are his and his alone, and we live not for ourselves, but for him who died and set us free. God, make us Christians who radically abandon all things for the cause of Christ. Give us that attitude, Lord. Give us that heart that was not only Stephen's, but was Christ Jesus' himself. And we pray, Lord, that we would be used by you to bring more and more glory and honor to your name. God, use us to proclaim the truth of Christ to a lost and dying world. God, don't let us be silent. Don't let us be apathetic and complacent. Lord, stir us up, Father, I pray, for the glory and honor and fame of your name.